We are, uh, on Sanctity of Life Sunday, it, it is a, a serious subject uh, that we undertake this morning. There is a video series that has uh, been out uh, on YouTube, and it's uh, about first-time experiences for children. Some of them are lighthearted. Uh, video of first-time kids drink coffee. Kids meet a ventriloquist. Kids meet a news anchor, all in that sort of vein. But there is Always an agenda, at least it seems that way these days when it comes to social media. And so one of the latest videos that is out is called Kids Meet Someone Who's Had an Abortion. An abortion is the deliberate termination of a pregnancy. And this video posted about two weeks ago has about 400,000 views on YouTube and countless more on other forums. And the woman in the video is sitting between teen and preteen children, and she is taking their questions and asking questions. And one of the questions she asked was, do you think that sometimes it's not okay to have an abortion? One young boy answered, he said, well, I want to say if you're being reckless or if there's nothing wrong going on. To which she responded, I just don't agree. Do we want people to just have all those babies? That's a little stunning of a statement to begin with. But when the boy then suggested adoption, as an alternative for those children, she gave this insight that I think is quite revealing. I feel like if I am forced to create life, I have lost the right to my life. I should be the one to decide if my body creates life. In a nutshell, that is the mantra that has become sort of the, the talking point, if you will, to use sort of the, the, the cultural perspective. Uh, for those who would oppose restrictions on abortion. Planned Parenthood's new president said recently of abortion, we will never back down from that fight. It's a fundamental human right. This is part of a, a clear move away from the, the ground of the debate, which tended to be on the development and viability of unborn children. That's where it was for many years, and now it's largely moved to this rights issue, and, and that's really a, a result of the fact that neonatal research has opened up an incredible window on the unborn. We see and know things about children in the womb that science is showing us that we had not seen in such clear ways before. It's possible to know if you have a boy or a girl as young as 10 weeks into the pregnancy. Medical imaging lets us see that 18-week-old child sucking its thumb. And, and more and more doctors are agreeing that the age of viability now is perhaps as low as 22 weeks that a child can survive outside the womb, and there are documented cases of that. And so the argument over whether that's actually a baby in the womb has largely been made clear by science that, yes, indeed it is, and it is developing as a human being, although that doesn't necessarily silence the argument. The video I mentioned, the, the woman approved of a teenage boy who said a child in the womb is, quote, like a sea cucumber. It's not thinking, it's just living. That, that sort of foolishness is still propagated, even though it has been widely proven false. And so the arguments now zero in on this idea of fundamental human rights. Neonatal science, politics of abortion can be both fascinating and maddening at the same time. But as believers in Jesus Christ... Our understanding, our convictions about what is humanity, what is human life, must ultimately come from the creator, the one who has made creation. If we believe that there is a God who has made this, 
who has made human life, then he has the basic privilege and right of defining human life, of telling us who we are and what we need. And so it's not surprising then that that one side now in this debate is using language like, I should be the one to decide if my body creates life. Understand, that is, that is not a political argument, and that is not a mere philosophical argument. That is a bold, evil, arrogant, theological argument about God. And what it says is that with respect to my unborn child, I am God over that life. I am the one solely who can determine what happens with that life. And that is sort of the argument that we're seeing now is that um, that the woman has full and sole right to do with her unborn child as she decides. And, and that is just the logical outflow of a self-worshipping culture that says, I, I want to do what I want to do. I want freedom to live as I want to live. I want to be in charge of my own life and not be bound by certain morals or rules. If we are committed to a biblical worldview, then we must begin with God as creator. We must start at that fundamental place that Genesis 1 declares and says, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that fills it, including human beings. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 makes it abundantly clear that men and women are created by God in his image and likeness. He has made us. He is the creator. That is the starting point. No person other than the God-man Jesus Christ can claim any mantle when it comes to the creation of human life. We saw in Isaiah a few weeks back when we were talking about God's will where Isaiah makes it very clear that, that it is a, a potter to clay relationship. God is the potter. He is the creator. We are the work of his hands. He is the one who has made us. I'd like you to open in your Bibles in the Old Testament for a few minutes this morning, Jeremiah chapter 1. In the prophets toward the last half of the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 1. And what I want us to see this morning in Scripture is where we get our view of human life because it must be consistent with what we see from our Creator. God is the maker of human life. He treasures human life, not only in the womb, but even before conception and from there on into eternity. Therefore, you and I are called to respond by treasuring human life, by valuing it as our Creator does. Just to set the scene for you, Jeremiah is preaching to the nation of Judah that has run toward rebellion against God. It's around 600 B.C., and one of the things Jeremiah realizes is that he is preaching this message of God judging people for their sin, and there's this whole collection of prophets on the other side who are saying, oh no, all is well, you are fine. You have nothing to worry about. And so Jeremiah is not giving a popular message. The Jewish people did not want to hear what he had to say. In fact, in Jeremiah 14, God says there are lying prophets. They, they are out there telling you everything is peace. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't change a thing. And so Jeremiah is up against this, and, and Jeremiah understands that, and so he is about to preach the judgment of God, and so he begins his prophecy by saying, this is God's word. This is not just my opinion. This is not just some idea. And so if you don't like it, you can get mad at me all you want, but it's God who you are contending with. 
It is God's truth that you're going to have to argue with at this point. And he says, ultimately, my authority is delegated from him. And so look at how he describes how God commissioned him to the ministry of being a prophet. Jeremiah 1, verse 4 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated or set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is Jeremiah's way of saying, don't shoot the messenger. God put me here. He is, he is giving full authority back to God, that this message that I speak to you began with the commissioning and appointment of God. And so he starts at the, the beginning of the book to say that, and this is just to amplify it by, by giving us God's declaration that God was at work in Jeremiah's life even before he was formed in the womb, even before Jeremiah's mother was pregnant, God was already at work. Now, what I want to do is look at this in several verses this morning that highlight some of the clear teachings of Scripture on, on God's interaction, cherishing with human life, life before birth, and what God says about it, what the Creator tells us. And we're going to see that not only does God create human life, but He treasures it with high value. And so the first principle is this one. God knows us before the womb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. The Hebrew word for knowing often has th this particular Hebrew word, the, the, the notion of perception. It's not just a an awareness of facts, but it is, I know in the sense that I seek this out and I, I, I delve into it and I know it well. It's an intimate sort of knowledge to the point that Genesis 4.1 gives us the, the most intimate picture of all, the same Hebrew, Hebrew word. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. And so he's referring there to the most intimate of knowledge, that between a husband and a wife and the conception of a child. So when God says to Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you, this is not just some sort of, I had some awareness, you know, I, I knew at some point, I, I sort of had a plan and, and it, I, I was thinking there would be a son. He's saying, I, I intimately already knew you in a way that Jeremiah and you and I cannot comprehend because we can't even comprehend understanding in the womb. God is saying, I knew you before that, before I ever created you. David wrote a psalm just to celebrate this, this knowledge of God. Psalm 139, 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You, you orchestrated my life, setting the boundaries of beginning and end before I was ever even conceived. The, the Puritan Joseph Carroll, who lived in the 1600s, tried to describe that particular statement in Psalm 139 by referring to an architect who builds a model or draws a draft of a building that doesn't yet exist, and yet in the model or in the draft, every room is there. You can see it all, but it's just not yet been formed. And Carol says, using 17th century English, thou hast made me as exactly as if thou had drawn my several members and my whole proportion with a pen or a pencil in a book before thou wouldst adventure to form me up. He's talking about the intimate knowledge of God, that before the first 
ultrasound, before the, the big gender reveal, the, the, the thing that is nowadays, that us old folks didn't have, the, the big gender reveal stuff, before the pregnancy test that, that showed whatever color or however many lines it is that said positive, even before there was sexual intimacy, God knows the person that he will form. And that's what allows us to go back into Ephesians chapter 1 and celebrate God's work in redeeming a people before they are even created. God is already establishing his redemption of people in Ephesians 1. So it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before when? Before creation, before the foundation of the world. God already, already intimately knows you and I. There's nothing random about God's creation of individual human lives. Your, your life was not subject to chance. It didn't just happen. God didn't kick it all into motion with Adam and Eve and then sit back and wonder what would happen like we do as we anticipate the next episode in that weekly drama that we watch. What, what will unfold next? God already knows. God is already active in that, as hard as that is for us to comprehend. And that takes us to the second principle. Not only does God know us before the womb, God forms us in the womb. He says here in Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. The Hebrew word for formed was familiar to the Jewish audience in that century because they understood it as the work of pottery. It is the language that was used, the root of it was used in, in what a potter does to clay. He squeezes it and he shapes it and he takes what seems to be nothing and, and suddenly makes it into something distinct and wonderful. And that's the kind of language that he's using here. Same word formed here that's used in the creation account in Genesis 2-7 when it says the Lord God formed and the man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. That's the language Jeremiah uses here and, and is used elsewhere in Scripture, as we'll see, to talk about God forming in the womb. God's handiwork, when he formed you through a process of reproduction that he created, is no less miraculous than God reaching into the dust of the earth and breathing life into it and creating a human being. It is still the handiwork of God as he forms your life was fashioned by the hand of your creator. Again, Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Whether it is an ultrasound of a preborn child or an x-ray that you've just gotten for some ill part of your anatomy, it is hard not to look at those images and marvel at the detail and the intricacy and the complexity of what you're seeing there and seeing what's going on inside that body and how it all fits together. My daughter and I were looking at an x-ray of a dog a few weeks ago, and even in that, you, you look at that and you go, that's pretty remarkable, the way all of these different parts just line up and fit. All of that, when it comes to human life, is, is shouting out a testimony that says, there is a creator, there is a designer to this, there is one who knits together who forms these things. It didn't just all sort of randomly climax into something that is as remarkable and magnificent as human life. It is the handiwork of God. God knows us before the womb. 
Jeremiah speaks of him forming us. David does as well. The third thing is God calls and equips people while they are in the womb. God calls and equips people while they are in the womb. Go back to the New Testament, the book of Galatians, maybe about halfway in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 1. Paul writes Galatians and starts Galatians with very much the same mindset as Jeremiah. He is about to say something to an audience that isn't exactly excited to get a letter from him, a message that is going to be challenging and pushing them. And so he's doing a lot of the same thing that Jeremiah was doing. Paul had been in those in that area before of Galatia, he had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. People had responded. They had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. And then Paul left and went on to the next city. And what happens? False teachers start coming in. And they say, well, sure, Jesus Christ is part of the deal. You've also got to have works. You've got to perform. If you want God to like you, you're going to have to please God in some way. And if you don't do these works, then you can't call yourself saved. That's silly. And so Paul is having to write Galatians to go back and say, no, 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 it is by faith alone, in Christ alone, that one is saved. And so he begins, much as Jeremiah does, to say, I know I'm writing from a distance, but I just want to be clear with you. This is not just some man-made idea. This is, this is God-given truth spoken from someone who has been delegated authority. He's not, he's not claiming authority for himself personally. He's claiming authority that's been commissioned to him by God. And he is making it clear that the gospel is not something man-made. And so he does that in the first few verses, and you can read through that as you have opportunity, where he says, no other gospel. This is not, this, this is not something man came up with. And then verse 15. Look at verse 15 of Galatians 1. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And he goes on from there to give his testimony of his conversion and his call into ministry. Paul begins several of his letters by calling himself an apostle, a sent one, and he usually does that as a a delegated authority statement. Again, he uses apostle when he has to make sure that they understand that this is not just some guy off the street just sending you a letter. This is from God, and I am coming to you as an apostle. Galatians has the strongest affirmation of that at all. If you get a chance and you see in verse 1, it just he says this, I'm not an apostle from men or through men. I haven't been appointed by some council. It's not some committee that appointed me to this. I am an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So what he's doing in verse 15 is just putting the exclamation point on that. God put me here. In fact, God appointed me to this before I was even born. God, this is God's word speaking. So this is not just Paul rambling and offering some thoughts of possibilities. This is the word of God adding that exclamation that says, God set Paul apart before he was born. This is the word of God affirming to us that God not only knows us before the womb, not only forms us in the womb, but God also equips, designs those who will serve him as well. He's doing that in the womb. When it says set apart, um, verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, the idea is selected. God selected Paul for, for particular ministry. God identified and selected Paul when he was in his mother's womb, and then he is called into service 
as a consequence of that selection, and he is following that. That calling was initiated with God. One of the side points we should get out of all this, whether it's Jeremiah or David or Paul, or we'll, we'll see it as well in Luke or John the Baptist, that it, none of these are guys who built up a really strong resume of service and faithfulness and learning and then went to God and said, I would like to apply for the job of being your servant. Look at all what I've done. All of these say, no, no, no. God did this before you even knew I existed, God says. I, I, I already called you and equipped you. Philip Ryken writes, God claimed Paul's life and ministry while he was still in his mother's womb. Isaiah 49, the servant of the Lord says, the Lord called me from the womb. Later in Isaiah 49, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. I mentioned Luke 1, the birth of John the one who precedes Jesus Christ. You remember the story from Luke 1 where Zechariah, the priest, is, is met by an angel as he is performing his priestly service, and the angel comes to Zechariah before a baby is even conceived, and in fact, Zechariah and his wife are old. They have given up on the notion of childbearing, and here comes this angel to say to Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Zechariah was stunned, so stunned that he ended up getting punished for his lack of faith and losing speech for at least a season because he, he just found this so hard to believe. And so later on in that same chapter in Luke 1, verse 24, says, after these days, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. So even before John was conceived in the womb of Elizabeth, he was already a man in the mind and will of God who had a specific purpose and calling and actually even fruit that would be born that God had already designated through this life. Many will rejoice as a result of your preaching. And so God is at work in him before he is born. Similar language in the Old Testament in the book of Judges when it speaks of Samson. And, and the announcement again, uh, the, the angel appears to a woman who has not yet conceived and in uh, the book of Judges, chapter 13 says, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And the angel goes on to describe how this son would grow to be a man who was uniquely devoted to God. Throughout Scripture, we've seen that in almost a half a dozen different places already. Throughout Scripture, there is this repeated emphasis on God's intimate involvement with human life, even before it is what we would biologically, scientifically call human life, even when it is before conception, God is already, knows that life, will form that life, will equip that life, will knit together that life with his purpose in mind. In light of those truths, we more than anyone else on the planet, as people of God, should cherish human life. We should value it and treasure it, knowing that these are people who have been made in the image and likeness of God, and we should be champions for life, human life, preborn, children, middle-aged, elderly, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, sick, well, able, disabled, poor, prosperous, rich, whatever you want to call it, whatever ethnic class, whatever 
phase in life, male, female, we should hold this fundamental truth that we are known and formed by God. And we should defend life and cherish life and worship the creator of that life for what he has done. And we should detest the taking of human life. We should be willing to call abortion what it is. And it is an evil defiance of the creator. But we should also, in its place, we should also celebrate two realities that offer glorious illustrations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of those is forgiveness. The call of our Savior to those who have chosen abortion in the past or participated in some way, supported abortion, whatever it might be, is the same call that goes out to all sinners. Turn to Jesus Christ and be forgiven. There is no category here that says, ah, but this one, this one's tough. This one, I don't know what God can do about this one because the call of Scripture is to turn to Jesus Christ and to be forgiven. We all began life living in open rebellion to our Creator. Scripture says we all entered life shaking our tiny little fist at the Creator and saying, I want to do this my way. I want to be in control. And you know that when you have little children who don't want to be told anything. You know all that fun stuff in child. Those of you who've raised kids, you've, you've experienced that, that sinful nature is there in us from the beginning. If given the choice, I want to be God. I want to do what I want to do and please myself at any given time. And yet Colossians 2 says, You who were dead in your trespasses... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, what word is there? Having forgiven us all our transgressions, all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, offers to you a forgiveness on the basis that he took, whether it's abortion, immorality, lying, anger, Stealing, you name it, it's on that list, it's on that debt, and it deserves punishment. We deserve the wrath of God for that sin, and Jesus Christ takes it on the cross and bears the wrath of God so that he might be punished in our place and so that he might offer to you and I forgiveness. The joy of being able to stand before our Creator, having been redeemed in the righteousness of Christ. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should never go to this topic without going back to the gospel. Because the politics, whether they go for or against, whatever the arguments are in science, and there's wonderful arguments, in the end, we need to bring this back to a creator and his plan for redemption of his people, of a fallen people who desperately need a savior and need forgiveness. We should celebrate forgiveness, and secondly, we should celebrate adoption. There is a, such a theological richness behind adoption. Ephesians uses this as well. We read a couple verses already from Ephesians 1, verse 5. says, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Because of that condition in which we entered life as hostile to God, we were standing apart from him. There is a, a general sense, Paul alludes to this in Acts of God, as 
father of creation in the sense that he has made it all, but as far as intimate father-child relationship, when, when a person is hostile to Jesus Christ, doesn't possess that. It is only by virtue of adoption. It is the work of, of saving a soul that now brings us to that place where we can cry out, Abba, Father, you have adopted me and taken me from being hostile and outside of the family of God to now belonging to you as a son or a daughter of the living God. One of the sweet ways we live out the rich theological truth of adoption is by the physical reality of actually doing it in our lives and in our homes, opening homes to orphans and taking them to be family and sharing it, the love of Christ. I was talking to, to Brandon after the, the first service. They have two children adopted, and he said, you know, one of the, the neatest things about it is at some point, you see all the family and friends around you come to realize this is your son and daughter. They're a different color than their parents, and yet there's no more thought of that. That's your son and daughter. You lose track of all of the differences, and it's just they're mine. They're our children. And he said how sweet it is to see people around them see that take place and just watch and get it in their own minds. It's a sweet thing. That's really the beauty of adoption. When we're brought into the family of God, it's, it's not like we're still sort of under probation with God, sort of hoping that we actually finally fulfill this adoption and it all works out. We are saved and we are made his. And from that instant, we can cry out, Father. If it hadn't snowed last week, on Sunday night, Jeremy was going to be speaking to us from Psalm 22 I just want to mention something about Psalm 22, and I won't, I won't steal it all because Jeremy still has a Sunday night coming here down the road. So if you want the full picture of Psalm 22, you'll save one of those second Sunday nights. There's the pitch. Um, but let me just give you the quick 30,000 foot. David's in, in affliction. David is suffering. David is crying out to God in Psalm 22 doesn't know if life's going to last or if he's going to die because apparently he's surrounded with enemies. And so he starts to do what you and I are supposed to do in those situations. He starts reciting what he knows about God to be true. He starts saying things about God's faithfulness and who God is because he knows that's what he's got to do is cling to truth. That's what you and I have to do when the circumstances are trying to blow us apart. We've got to go, wait, what is true about God in this? And in Psalm 22.10, David wrote, on you, speaking to the Lord, was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. You understand, David is, is aware at that point, how can I possibly betray you, God, by acting as if you are not there when you have been there before I was there? You, you loved me and you set your affection on me even when I didn't even know who you were, even when I had no thoughts of God. You set your affection on me. We don't know all of the circumstances behind the psalm, but David is in distress, and in the midst of that, he keeps saying things to himself about who God is. And chief among them is, you have been my God from the time I was in the womb. What do I have to fear? If you had me then, I know you have me now. If you had me before I even understood who you were, then I rest in you now. 
And that, that knowledge buoys David up, and he worships in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his uncertainty. Psalm 22, he keeps doing this back and forth, struggling with the reality of suffering in human life, but saying, wait, I know who you are. And at the very end of the psalm, he's, he's surrounded by enemies and threats, and he speaks about the power and greatness of God to save people. And at the end, his last words in Psalm 22 are, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. And there it is. There's David saying, you know what, God? You, you set your affection on me before I was even born. And I want to remember because I want to proclaim who you are to those who aren't even born yet. I want, to be, I want to be faithful so that I am proclaiming your truth so that all who come will hear that testimony. God calls us to proclaim to generations yet to come the truth of who he is and how he rescues people. Those who have not even yet been born, he knows and will form and breathe life into. There are those not yet conceived there are some who are conceived, yet not born, maybe here this morning. I know we did in first service. I don't know about this service. I'm not expecting any announcements at this moment. <laughs> and there are some who are just like those sweet little ones that you all saw the pictures of that were dedicated this morning, Riley and Zoel. And to them, you and I have the sweet privilege of letting them know about Jesus Christ and his gospel. You and I have that privilege, as David said, to declare the, the greatness of the creator, of the one who gave them life, of the one who knew them, of the one who formed them and knit them together, the one who designed them for his glory and for his fame. You and I should be the ones to teach that message, to cherish life, to proclaim the greatness of our creator who forms and calls and equips, we should treasure as part of our worship of God his sweet valuing of human life and how he cherishes it as a precious gift that is the loving work of his mighty hands. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you. We just say it so casually sometimes, Father, you are Father to your people. We trust you. Help us to be like David and to cry out to you as the one who, who we are dependent on. Father, save us from that, that attitude that would be so self-absorbed, so convinced that everything we have is who we are and, and lose sight of the fact that we owe our existence to you as creator, that in fact, you make it clear in Colossians that our our beating heart, the beating heart of an unborn child even, that that is sustained by the work of your son, Jesus Christ, who upholds. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone listening to this this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ, a Savior, who has not come to that place of reveling in the wonder of a, of a debt of sin being nailed to the cross, in the flesh of Jesus Christ and punished there so that we might be forgiven. Would today be the day, Lord, that you would, that you would save, that you would bring people to see the wonder and the glory of the gospel and bring them to turn from their sin and, and say, Lord Jesus, I'm, I want to follow you. I want to turn from my sin and believe in you and stake my hope on you. 
Lord, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, help us this week to be cognizant of the wonder of your gift of creation, to not take for granted the power, the design, the order of the universe around us and of the amazing complexity of the human body. Cause us to worship, to to very much like the psalmist in Psalm 19 who looks up at the stars and looks around at creation and can't help but be driven to his knees in awe of who you are. That not only have you made all this, but that you have set in motion a plan through your son and his suffering to redeem a people for yourself. Help us to be those sorts of champions for life, to not grow discouraged or weary, to not put our hope in the world of politics, but to believe and to pray for those who you've put in authority, to pray that they would stand for life, that when given the opportunity, they would support policies that stand for life. Lord, help us to be personal about this and to be engaged ourselves, praying for those crisis pregnancy centers, interacting with family members and friends around us, showing by our actions, by our sacrifice, the value and the treasure that is human life made in the image and likeness of you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for the hope that we have in him. In his name we pray. Amen.